Hello and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast, the podcast for event professionals who want to stay ahead of the game by hearing from leading innovators in the event industry. My name is Miguel Neves and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of EventNB. In this episode, titled Handling Imposter Syndrome in the Event Industry, I have the pleasure of speaking with two amazing event professionals, Shane Lewis, Business Development Manager at Venue IQ, and Elliot Jacobson, Global Marketing Manager at Canopy. We discuss not only their experiences with imposter syndrome, but we also cover lots of ground about the future of events and how event technology will continue to be part of all events going forward. We cover things like how there may have never been a more exciting time to work in event tech. We cover how the social side of the event industry is a major motivating factor for event professionals. We talk about Shane and Jacob's specific experiences with imposter syndrome, and we talk about the possible reasons why so many event professionals suffer from imposter syndrome. And we also cover how the added pressure of pivoting to virtual has impacted event professionals. We cover the best ways of working with content now and in the future. And we also predict how event tech vendors may shift their focus post-pandemic. I hope you enjoy listening to these conversations. And I invite you to check out other episodes of the Event Manager Podcast with tips and insights from today's most influential event professionals. You can find all the episodes on our website, or you can subscribe via your favorite podcast service. Now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast. Joining me today is Shane Lewis, the Business Development Manager at Venue IQ. Thank you for joining us today, Shane. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. So we go back a few years. I don't know. I don't know exactly how many years, but uh, for people that don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the event industry? So, yeah, so uh, as you kind of mentioned, I'm currently the business development manager at Venue IQ, um, but we first crossed paths when we were on opposite sides of the uh, the big My Super Shows, I guess is the best way to describe it. I was on IBTM during your time at IMAX, <clears throat> starting as a sales exec, overseeing the primarily the technology area, which um, evolved into as part of being a bit of a also overseeing South America as a, um, as a region as well, co um alongside the tech area which made for a, an interesting mix day to day as you can imagine yeah interesting and, and how did you end up on tech because obviously our our listeners are very much around event technology and innovation was that something that was just assigned to you or did you have a particular interest in event technology <laughs> believe it or not i was actually hired to be an ftc to sell tables at ibtm india which never really quite got off the ground and tech was kind of the it was a role because you can imagine with the the smaller size of the deals and stuff compared to the big destinations the kind of the more established sales managers just didn't really have the time for it so i kind of kind of accidentally fell on my plate but kind of played into a little bit into i guess my strengths because i actually found it i found it more interesting than maybe sort of the destination side almost because it's a lot faster paced moving the the players change from almost on a monthly basis let alone on a on an annual basis of a show like that and uh, it was just something I really then found, I kind of found as a home, which as you can see now that I've gone to the supplier side of the fence. Absolutely. Now you're on the dark side, right? Or what some people call the dark side. So uh, we'll get to that in a sec. But when do you actually start with IBTM just to kind of get a point of reference? Oh, I think 2012, maybe. Um, not long after university, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I was very green, very green. And what did you study at university? Uh, I, got, I studied international marketing and business. Okay. at the Montford University up in Leicester. So not directly connected to events, but not a million miles away. Exactly. I think it was more my extracurricular activities. I got into the the nightlife promotional element with the ticket selling and running a few nights. So uh, really just for the free drink, but um, they are technically events. So that's where I got my taste as it were. Excellent. Excellent. And did you jump from uh, IBTM to Venue IQ or did you do anything else in between? Uh, I had a, a stint of just under two years with Montgomery working on a hospitality show, 
Um, I, I fancied something different, but uh, funnily enough, I got uh, pigeonholed into the hospitality tech area of the show because of my my background, which was yeah. obviously something that was quite, it was enjoyable, not quite as exciting as event tech because most of it was sort of EPOS solutions, most of my biggest clients, but still text tech to a degree. So there was a, a degree of interest there. Interesting. And, you know, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the tech area being smaller and that's, I think, still true on, on most shows, but do you think that's maybe flipping around a little bit? Do you, do, do you imagine kind of bigger shows having larger tech areas, maybe even larger than some of the destination areas? Well, I think you just have to look at something maybe like Event Tech Live and how that's grown over the years under sort of Adam. Um, it's, it's becoming more and more critical. I think particularly on something like IBTM and IMX, I don't think it's ever going to be as big as the destinations just purely because the destination stand set up with the, the stand partners and it's um, the, the country is just representing so much of the different regions in one space where a tech company is never going to quite be like that. But during my time on IBTM, it started out as everyone having sort of six maximum 12 meter shell schemes, as it were. And by the time I left, you had the likes of CVEN and Europalco were taking 50 plus meters uh, custom build stands in the area so there was clearly you could see the the influx of money coming into the area the growing importance and then the need for them to want to differentiate as well because it's such a broad terminology technology at the moment obviously that's a lot more focused on the platform side of things but when you you'd have your registration you'd have your apps you'd have your um even your event services which kind of fell into that area as well there was there's quite a broad range of sort of needs and requirements delegate tracking all sorts of variations as such yeah, it's definitely evolving at, at a really interesting pace. And uh, so what really makes you enjoy the event industry? You know what? It's always just been, more than anything, it's been the buzz and the people. Like uh, from a colleague perspective, it's always been good fun. And then from a client perspective as well, like everyone I've kind of come into to, to touch with, because they've also got that events bug, they get it. Everyone, it is, it's a bit of a cliche phrase, but work hard, play hard. Everyone knows. <laughs> events is not a nine to five job if you think it is then you're in the wrong job um but you also know that at the end end of any show there's always a great big party with your clients with your, with your friends with your colleagues and you just kind of always feel like there's a real sense of community and unity throughout it all nice very very much the human factor and and i mean it's not not trying to be a trick question but do you find that that exists when it's a virtual event as well um, I think there's elements of it, obviously, a bit more challenging, but I think it almost shows the um, the determination of the human spirit of this. We will we will connect, we will stay engaged, and people are still attending virtual events. There are still networking elements involved. Obviously, nothing beats this, the idea of just looking someone in the whites of their eyes, as it were, um, just from a, from a human contact perspective. We, we're made as social creatures. We're not supposed to be isolated, so... It's, it's natural for us to want to try and do that in whichever ways are possible to us. Absolutely. And a bit of a fun question for you. How do you explain what you do to your friends and family? Is, is it challenging? <laughs> so it's a great question, this. Um, I, it made me laugh when I, when I was thinking about it. Um, so now it's a lot easier than it used to be because now I can just say I work for a software company and we sell, we sell apps as well as other things and people tend to take that on face value. Um, but there's this... You, it changes with person to person, but you will see that moment that their eyes glaze over when they ask the, oh, tell me more, and you, do they just get lost as I tried to explain what it was. <laughs> um, but during my time on IBTM, it was, it was quite funny to find out one of my sisters was convinced that I was an estate agent, or not a estate agent, a travel agent even, because I just kept traveling to all these places. And so it's just natural to think that that's what I did. And I was, <laughs> I was like, who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> It is funny. I mean, I, I recall having numerous conversations with friends and family where, you know, you explain or you you kind of give them idea of what you do. And then in conversation with them, you realize that they have no idea right? that there is this sort of like, okay, that's not really what I do, but that's fine. I think you have the same thing as well when sort of explaining IMAX, when you try to explain to someone, we arrange meetings about meetings. Yes. <laughs> People are like, sorry, what? Yeah, I do kind of say that it's the meta show right the, the the event for people that organize events and and that that's a bit far-fetched for most people i believe yeah we we used to the analogy um we used to use uh, on our side was always just like imagine trying to cook for a chef that's basically what we do yeah yeah there are significant challenges there and everybody's a critic so uh, so it is it is a tough one 
So, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to, to do this, this podcast was to talk about imposter syndrome. Uh, and I think this is something we wrote a, a quite an extensive article about that recently. And I learned a lot from, from reading it. It was one of our editors that, that wrote the article. Uh, and I put out a post on LinkedIn talking about imposter syndrome and, you know, who's thought about it, who's felt it, what's happened. And you were the only man to respond to it, which I thought was, was really interesting. Um, I know there's something that's been written about a lot, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it, it, we just felt it was fascinating to see there was a lot more openness, I think, or a lot more kind of identifying with this issue for females. Is that, have you come across this as well? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a funny one, really. Particularly when you look at the events industry, I guess, historically, it has been quite a female, influ heavily sort of influenced industry as a whole. So potentially from a statistics perspective, there's maybe less men seeing the post. But I think there's more on a wider social issue when it comes to sort of looking at mental health or anything like that. Showing vulnerability from a male perspective, a lot of the time could be perceived as showing weakness. We almost look at it from a more, I guess, the protector side of things, and but we don't do stuff like that. And that's why I was hoping one of the reasons I reached out that whilst it's only a small issue, there are far more bigger um, issues that can affect people by normalizing the small things, it makes the, the bigger issues easier for people to talk about. And if nothing else, hopefully some this has a positive influence on someone somewhere in the world if they hear it. Absolutely. Sounds good. I think that's always a, a helpful and, you know, we write at MB, we write very much about technology and innovation but there's always a human element to everything we do and i think it's important not to forget that and, and be able to apply that so tell me a little bit about why you identified with this post and what how it's really how imposter syndrome has impacted you yeah i, I particularly found it when i first joined um reed to be honest and joining ibtm um i like i'm from a sort of for lack of a better phrase, a bit of a dodgy part of Southeast London. Um, I went to a polytechnic university. It's not particularly a, a red brick, um, as we refer to it, sort of here in the UK, of like the established um, sort of big ones. And so once I secured a role working for a big international events company, I turned up on the first day. Many of my colleagues, the, the, the English ones, were sort of private school educated and everyone else spoke at least two or three languages. My grasp of English was only just managing to manifest itself, let alone sort of the caliber of some of the people that I worked with. And that was very daunting and very overwhelming for, for sure. Um, and then even Richmond in itself is a very affluent area. You kind of go there and kind of coming from the part of London that I'm from to probably one of the, one of the nicest parts of the country, all of a sudden thinking, well, what am I doing here? Like I've really kind of blagged my way into this one. Um, and so, it, it took a little while for me to, I guess, really sort of start to feel comfortable. Um, even after six weeks into the job, I was at, I was, it was a lovely opportunity, but I was I was asked to go and represent us at um, Evento Plus's um, annual awards at, in Madrid at the ball ring. So there's me, I'm like 23, 24, not too long out of uni, um, stood on stage at an all Spanish speaking awards ceremony, having to give someone an award thinking, what is going on right now? Like, how how am I here? And it was... As, as silly as it sounds, because my glasses were only usually reading glasses, but I actually kept them on the whole day and during the evening just to try and appear more intelligent and somewhere of a little bit older. And kind of, it was almost like wearing a mask. And it's, it seems so silly to admit now, but at the time, it's generally made me feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, that's interesting. So there was a, yeah, there's sort of a, a protective mask. Almost feels like a little bit when. Uh, Forgive the analogy, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but when you think about something like Comic-Con, where people dress up and sort of have, have a character, play a character, then they can be whatever they can be, right? So having this sort of mask makes you well, feel invincible in some sense, so it, it kind of lets you overcome those issues. No, it's a spot on analogy. It's exactly that. As I say, it kind of, yeah, it was trying to hide the insecurity that I, I felt behind, which is really, which is strange because some people went perhaps when wearing glasses would feel more insecure wearing them, but it was kind of <laughs> on its head. Yeah. So, I mean, so tell me more, like, uh, were there other situations? Because I think, you know, a lot of what you talked about, it can be put down to just, you know, self-doubt or feeling, feeling a bit unexperienced. But, you know, when did you realize it was, it was more than that or it became more of an issue you know, throughout your time there, or were there were there kind of situations or things that happened that that led you to think that? Um, it was, you know, it was one of those things that would just chip away, sort of time by time. Fortunately, over time, as you grow more comfortable with something, that sort of it eased. But even like 
today as an example, where it's uh, whilst it's obviously a pleasure to be on this, like 10 minutes before this was a bit getting a bit of a sweat on thinking, do you know what? Does anyone really care what I have to say? I'm a relative, I'm still, I'm a young sort of sales guy. Um, there's far more influential people in the sector who are going to pull in numbers just because of their name. So even now it's kind of like, am I, I kind of feel it a little bit in my stomach today. Not, not as bad as you would have done as I would have done sort of years ago, but it is natural. I think for anyone to kind of feel like that when you feel in a slightly more uncomfortable position. Um, I still even remember the first time I went to IMAX as well, having to then get to the air, get that because it was, um, I did my first IMAX before I did my first IBTM. So I got to see the competitive one first coming down the escalator. And I see a guy dressed as a Mountie walking past me, just thinking, well, where am I? Like I've now entered this whole new crazy world where you've got the, the, the entire globe all kind of put into little segments and sort of walking around, but, but having to speak to members of, um, like tourism boards and stuff and just thinking, why am I like, why am I here? Like I, it was a real sense of dread. And I think, Unfortunately, where you then try to compensate by over being overconfident, I was often one of the criticisms I used to get in some of my early, I guess, um, peer reviews and sort of 360s in the office was that I come across sometimes with a chip on my shoulder. Um, mm -hmm. And it's probably something that I do still carry a little bit because I've not had the same sort of upbringing and sort of location of where so many of my colleagues come from that it's uh, not so much use it as an excuse, but I'd almost try, almost try and overcompensate for it. And as a result, it sometimes come across in a bit of a negative way where that was never the way it was meant to be um, intended as it were. Interesting. So you've talked a little bit about, you know, the experiences you've had. I don't know if there's any others that, that you want to mention, but, but I wanted to also talk about, you know, what you've done about it. You know, how have you, how have you dealt with it? Sure. Well, um, before I kind of move on to, I guess, how moving on, there's one that I think this one's a little bit lighter. I just think of it a comedy one. That I think people appreciate. And if, if he's listening, and I don't know if I ever actually told him this. So the then exhibition director, Graham Barnett, um, I remember on my first day coming into Richmond, he was on my train and where I was coming in as a junior role, I obviously had to then do a pre presentation, do a lot of research. So I saw a lot of videos of Graham's face and um, I remember getting off the train and seeing him and it was, <laughs> for the lack of a better phrase, almost a little bit starstruck, um, which I'm sure will stroke his ego fantastically, as I said, <laughs> if he hears this right now. Um, and just thinking again, like this guy's almost like a mini celebrity at this point to me of like, I've seen his face and watched his videos so many times over the last few weeks in this like interview process. And so now I've literally just got off the same train as him. And um, again, that was kind of probably one of the first, like, this is sort of real moments. Like, um, does this mean I'm going to be on, I'm, I'm, someone's going to be watching my video eventually. Like, is that how this works? Like it was a, it was so stupid when I think back about it, but at the time it really kind of took me back. Um, so I, let me, let me ask you, did you, did you walk? behind him in front of him did you take a detour to the office when you when you got off the train oh i hung massively back <laughs> now he wouldn't have known who i was at all like, he probably he would have heard a name of someone coming in but he wouldn't have seen my face yet he would have had yeah. no idea i was interviewing with the the then head of sales so he was still quite far removed from me but it was it was silly but at the time i look back at it now quite as quite a fond memory um, yeah. At the time, I just remember being really, really, it almost really amplified the nerves. I just wish I kind of got in the office first before I kind of maybe come across that. Yeah, really interesting. So tell me a little bit about how you've dealt with it over the years. What have you done to, to overcome it? I think a lot of it is a slow rebuilding, I say rebuilding, like building process. I think as I, I was, because I was with them for nearly five and a half years, so I did five editions of IBTM. So as time went on, as I grew more successful, as I, as I started to repeat going to these things like, not saying the traveling would lose its novelty because I always really, really enjoyed it. But after you've been a couple of times, you're not as nervous. Like you, you're there going as a professional, you're able to kind of take that on board. And then I was very, very lucky as well that sort of just towards the end of my first year, I got a, a new line manager, Rhonda, who was a fantastic um, mentor, not just professionally, but in life. And so I was able to share things with her a lot more and she was able to sort of guide me but there's an there's often a, an ingoing joke that she was my work mum that was very well um recognized around the sort of the IBTM team um yeah. so much so that when I left and went to Montgomery I actually brought Rhonda with me um about a few about a, a year later when I, when the event director role opened up on the show I was working on so I didn't forget the sort of the care and time she put into me the guidance the advice and just kind of like grounding when when I'm going off piece kind of grounding you but then when you needed picking up she'd pick you up and so she was very um, influential in all of that for me. Yeah, really interesting. I think uh, one of the things we mentioned in the article that, that we put out was how 
when you, when you are feeling like an imposter, part of the solution is, or one of the, one of the things that can help is to kind of just go over your, your, your CV, go over the qualifications that you have and sort of build yourself up in that way. And I think it was interesting. You mentioned, you know, coming on the podcast, which you're you know, very, very welcome. And it's nice to have you on here, but we just talked about all the experience you have with event technology. You know, you have what, seven, eight years of selling event technology in some sense, or, or more than that. So you're definitely qualified to be on the podcast and to, you know, to talk to anybody who's interested in event technology. But it's interesting that, you know, that's, I don't know if that's something that you, you've ever done, but to kind of look at that, I mean, I also, you know, this is my first kind of um, journalistic job as uh, the editor-in-chief of Event MB, and it's tough to kind of make that jump. Um, but then I also look at, okay, I've been working with event technology for something like 15 years or, you know, focusing out on, on some, in some sense. So like, yeah, I guess, I guess I do have some qualifications there. I guess I can speak. And I think that also helps me. I think, do you ever go through that process as well? Yeah, I guess from, maybe coming from a slightly different angle, not quite, I guess, as uh, reading over the CV, but you kind of, you remember some of the stuff you've done. You do kind of look at some of the highlights and think um, some of those passing conversations and pe um, I guess sometimes it's the, the people who surround who then ask your opinion on stuff you start to realize actually this is quite an, uh, an esteemed group of peers here like does this i'm actually one of them i'm not really sure how but I, this is fantastic these guys actually value my opinion um and i'm quite lucky i have a, a very good sort of professional support network from that sense within the event industry as well um mm. But there's a sort of we've got our own little in joke, which I can't tell you what it stands for, but there's uh, EWD. And we're quite, a, there's a really good collective of people in there from the likes of Adam Parry, sort of Matt Coins, you've got Dahlia, um, you've got likes of Johnny Martinez over at Shock Logic. There's quite a few, there's quite a few of us, Abby Cannons, um, all really, really great minds. And so we can really pick it. Some, sometimes it's some, some silly memes and some fun, but other times it's, there's really good um, in-depth discussions that we can, we can share, which is, I guess, yeah, quite reassuring in the fact that they, they kind of value me as one of them as well. Yeah. I've, I've seen that a lot. A lot of people have that on LinkedIn after their names, right? They use it as the, one of the uh, credentials EWD. So we'll have to explore that in, in another, in another episode of the event manager podcast. So getting back a little bit to this imposter syndrome, um, are there any other things that you do to deal with it or any other advice that you can give in that area? Um, I think it's like, like today, it's, it's sometimes it's just talking about it. There's, there's people going to be near and dear to you or close to you, particularly my girlfriend, for example, if I'm feeling like today when I was sort of saying a little bit nervous about this, she was, she was the one kind of like, babe, you've got this, you, you know your stuff. You're, you're confident like I don't understand like I must don't be silly like shake it off you've got this and just having someone sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be you might not necessarily have a partner um, but a parent friend so you're going to have someone there close to you who will be able to a problem shared is a problem halved as that old saying goes by just kind of like opening it letting someone just kind of reassure you and build you up a little bit can do a lot for you as well absolutely and what about, you know, in the larger event industry, uh, I think it does feel like imposter syndrome has come up a lot and people have a lot of the event industry professionals have identified with this issue. Is there, are there specifics for the industry and is there anything, you know, specific to the industry that can kind of be done about it? Um, I think, I think because as event organizers, so we're responsible for such a big project, so many different things, so many different moving parts of so many bits that can go wrong, particularly whether it's your first event or even if it's your 100th event, but it's, it's, um, get, the events are getting bigger. There's so many moving parts. You're always going to be that self-doubt. Am, am I good enough? Can I get this right? And I think, and I was trying to think of in advance this, of, I guess, a sensitive way of wording this, but there's not really a right way. So it's almost like a, a professional version of um, survivor's guilt, I think would be a massive thing in the sector at the moment, because there has been a massive culling of event professionals. A lot of people have had to leave the industry because events shut down for so long. So the people who are left are like, well, why did they keep me about? Am I good enough? And now with the talent shortage as well, people are being asked to do more with less. And so it can be a lot easier to become overwhelmed. And are they good enough to fulfill that? And I guess there's I, so my advice to those people would be there's a reason you you probably your, you kept your job, I guess. You were valued as for the, to be able to do that. And you wouldn't be given that responsibility if you weren't good enough. So 
kind of do what makes you need to do to kind of get yourself back in the zone. Obviously, your suggestion about the CV, bouncing off of others, but then just re and remember just why you are good at what you do. And I'm sure you'll still flourish. Yeah, I think some of the responses that I got to the post on LinkedIn were also more about when event professionals are on stage, or, you know, when they're speakers, when they're talking. Um, but I think it's interesting because in a sense, all event professionals are on stage in, in the sense that once the event starts, they're responsible, right? They're the ones that made it happen. They're the ones that took decisions and maybe did a risk analysis or whatever it was to make an event happen. And if it's something goes wrong or, or if the event doesn't live up to the expectations, they're to blame, right? And, and so in a sense, they're all in the spotlight. Uh, and so that even if you're not on stage as an event professional, you you're still in the spotlight in some sense. But yeah, it's um, you, you got to think there's always um, think of almost like TV production, for example. There's more people behind the camera than there are in front of it, essentially. So you, you say someone getting on stage to speak. Now that session might end up being the speaker might end up being quite dry. Um, and so people are whilst there might be critiques of the speaker, there's also well, who booked them? um who 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 went through those slides who thought that this would be good and useful content and so there's there's so many different other parts and you've got the av elements now we've got the added dynamic of the the virtual parts and making sure so you've now got the suppliers need to make sure that they do their bit as well so it's not just that person that you see there's a, an entire network that made that one element happen and so everyone has their part to play yeah nobody wants to be the person responsible for wasting you know, thousands of people's time if, if a speaker is not good or if a session doesn't go well, right? Um, exactly. Do you think that that kind of thing is even more important now or there's even more pressure now because, you know, of challenges around travel and, you know, some people are not willing to, to travel or I feel like it's harder to get people to, to go to live events. Is there added pressure there? Um, well, I think, I, I, I think, there's, there's certainly going to be added and well new pressures for sure and i guess there's and then there needs to be a serious conversation i guess about moving the goalposts and where the pressure and expectation is so if it's say at a trade show for example so we've exhibited a couple since the return they've been okay um obviously not what they were before but we're realistic the events industry isn't what it was before so we don't have that expectation that we want to have the the smashing numbers that we would have had two years ago um so we're probably easier exhibitors to maybe be spoken to but there may be others who are just like well this is rubbish this is what i was sold these are the numbers before so mm -hmm. by changing the narrative and changing the expectations and well what's the value what's the quality of the people for example what's the yes this is um what does the virtual audience look like what's the engagement there there's there's new dynamics to it. And so there should be new metrics and new KPIs to measure it against. So then you feel whether or not where those lines of pressure should sit, if that, if I've articulated that um, correctly. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So I wanted to cover with you a lot about kind of the future of the industry as well. Um, I think that that's really important and we've already sort of covered it a little bit, but do you have a clear vision of what you think events are going to look like in the future and, and the industry as a whole? Certainly. Well, I think for sure hybrid is here to stay. People were kind of flirting with it a bit prior to COVID anyway. And I think people now see the value that it can bring. I think particularly from a content driven perspective for people who it's, and also when you're thinking about it from obviously climate change is huge at the moment. So really, is it acceptable to jump on a four hour plane, stay somewhere for a, for a day and then get a plane back the same day? Could that have just could that have just been a Zoom call? Um, or could I just have tuned into that one session online and not had that detrimental element uh, factor on the on the environment from a larger scale? Um, also makes things more accessible, particularly we still have problems with travel. So still being able to engage and create leads for sponsors to be able to get in, see that content, engage with that, um, with, the, with what we've got there. I think particularly with the big super shows now, the big travel shows, obviously they worked really well anyway, because it's travel, but I haven't got into other events, sort of my, um, my interim after read. You, 
part of the growth model for a lot of the big exhibitions is well let's launch a new part of the show and we'll sort of grow that that's how we get more revenue and as a result over years of doing that the they kind of moved away from their core basis and so it's like oh we have twelve thousand people but actually they're so the audience is so diluted now that they can almost strip it back down to back to the core product because you were seeing an increase in those sort of more intimate one-to-one -one smaller conference setups are actually being far better returns for sponsors um, and suppliers because you're actually getting to meet the right people again it's not no disrespect to the students but the students walking around for free pens or someone who's actually there for part a of the show and actually you're you're there as part b so the hospitality event i worked on for example had kitchen equipment interior design food service and in the hospitality tech that's that's, a, that's broad i get they all under sit under hospitality and see where they grew it in that way however yeah. The chefs who are there tasting food have no interest in the epos stuff i was selling and vice versa where sort of more smaller pocketed dedicated stuff would have had a much higher level of engagement between visitors and uh, vendors and therefore rebooks would just book themselves you know what i mean yeah so can you unpack a little bit what you think hybrid what it means to you and and what works with hybrid because We've been analyzing hybrid for quite a long time on event event MB, and it, you know, it seems to be a buzzword. Yeah. Everybody, or the good, I think two thirds of, of our audience, kind of feels that it is the future, and that events, most events, will be hybrid. But then people have very different ideas of what hybrid is and what it looks like, and and what really works well. Do you have a specific kind of vision of what a great hybrid event looks like? Sure. Um, it is a, a bit of a loaded question. So I, I like this one. So I'll try my best to answer this. Um, so hybrid is a very broad term, as you say, and I think it's more about event per event and what works for certain events, because at, the reality is, whilst some of my competitors and uh, other suppliers might necessarily say, yeah, we can make that hybrid. Some events just won't work for like that hospitality event I worked on the food area. Um, you can't really hybrid food tasting, but you're not mm -hmm. going to buy a year's worth of chicken nuggets for showing my my Britishness here with very basic food <laughs> for a for a chain say um having not tasted them you just can't do that and so are you then going to post them to every potential visitor that's then a waste of resources so it's really difficult for that to work for for me and particularly I guess with us at Venue IQ we look at it more from a the content is where you, is really the most accessible bit for hybrid um allowing people to engage with it from afar so they're not having to come just for that they can, you can still track that from a delegate perspective. So if there is sponsorship and stuff involved, they can still provide leads for your sponsors. So it's not, yes, there may be a few less boots on the ground actually at the show. However, there's still a greater reach going on further forward from there. I think there are some elements that I still don't think work, that still need a lot of work. I do think the networking engagement is still a challenge for a lot of people, unless you're doing a proper buyer driven show like a, an IMAX or an IBTM and there's other industries that obviously have those sort of events where they're actively there with a project, they've got something in mind, they want to talk to you, then that works perfectly fine. I think the more drop by stuff is still problematic. Um, it's quite hard to necessarily identify who's there, who isn't, who wants to call at what time. It does in the right environments, it can work, but I think that's a really an area that still needs a lot of work and development. I think that's where the human factor comes in and that's where the real challenge is. Mm -hmm. But certainly from a, from a content perspective, if it's just accessing that, particularly if it's even if it's got um, industry accreditations to it, you can track dwell times, you can download all the workbooks quite easily, which then also makes it a little bit more sustainable so people aren't handing out flyers and stuff and stuff all the time. You can just engage from a, from afar, as it were, and then and also carry on with the day job as well, because one of the things that any person in the events industry will tell you is time is a real premium. Um, it's something that was, there's never enough of, particularly as you get closer to the show days. Um, so having to cut, being able to cut out that couple of hours train journey or the journey to the airport on a flight is a, a bit of a gift in itself. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, everything you said is very much in line with, with my thinking and, and with what we're seeing. Um, just wanted to go a little bit further in terms of the content. You mentioned content a few times, and I think it's clear that content can be consumed online quite well. Um, but there's a question at the moment that I'm that I'm kind of thinking about a lot, which is how important is it for the event, the, the kind of virtual side of the event to be synchronous, to be at the same time, for everybody to be there together? Because I think a lot of the advantages of, of online events are also because you can consume on demand. 
right? But in some senses, then, is it really an event? Because you're then creating content, but then allowing people to just choose when they um, when they consume it. So do you have any kind of thoughts about that? Or, you know, does Venue IQ have any kind of particular areas that they they, they advise in that? You know what? It's one of those ones. It's one of the, this is part of their, I guess, there's things are going to iron out over the next sort of year or two, hopefully, and people understand a bit more what they want to do and how they want to do it, because there is obviously a counterbalance. And for me, events, and that's why I mentioned content so much, you know, I think this is basically something that was installed in me from my, from my time at Reed is there's a very, for me, a very simple triangle is the way that events work. Content will always be the key because good content brings good delegates. Good delegates then speak to your sponsors. Your sponsors are then happy they pay for next year's show. So it kind of for all roads lead back to, I guess, content as a as a starting off point. Now that then obviously does have that risk of then pulling people away from the actual event, which is where that's the challenge. And so, as you say, if you can watch it on demand, um, you can kind of watch it whenever you want. So there's a few different ways, different um, vendors and stuff are approaching this and how they want to approach it. So watch it live for free if you want to watch it on demand. Well, there's a paid for ticket. Um, because they want you to encourage to be there at the right time. Obviously, if it's a live session being recorded, then you're missing out on the Q&A elements. And if there's something you're pressing that you wanted to ask and get involved in, then you're only going to get that by engaging in the, the actual session. Now, this is a slightly different deviating from the point Then you have that kind of argument from a content perspective of pre-record versus live. So if you're pre-recording it, then really anyone can watch it whenever they want anyway. Yes, you get the better production value, if you're using subtitles and stuff, you're not relying on Zoom and it's um, questionable um, understanding of some big regional accents sometimes and getting all those bits right. But then you you basically inviting people to say that con consume this whenever you, when suits you on that basis. Um, so there is no easy answer for that one at the moment. I think, again, it all depends on the style of event that you're, you're putting forward and what that content is trying to achieve um, as to whether or not that's going to have a massive effect or whether you want to drive that. We've got some people as well who, because you want to try and keep the virtual and in-person audience as equal as possible. But however, the reality from an organizer perspective, you kind of want to reward the people who are actually coming to the event a little bit more. So I've got some people who are withholding the keynote for the virtual because they want, if you want to see this big ticket, then physically come to the show because that obviously does more for us or mm -hmm. yeah, different pricing barriers depending on how they approach it. So there is no right answer at this stage, um, but it's very interesting seeing the different routes that um, organizers and sort of clients of my own are taking um, for what they feel suits them. And I do my best to advise where I can, but they're the real experts. Yeah, I mean, you need to be able to offer them the solutions and then they make those decisions, right? I think that, that's exactly. important. So sticking with kind of advising and seeing the future, are, you, are there any trends that you're expecting to see uh, in 2022 and maybe beyond that, that you're picking up on now? Sure. Well, I think the most obvious one um, is going to be, and I think it's a bit like, it's, it's funny because it's almost like a reflection of almost like 10 years ago when it was um, apps were all the rage. Um, there was obviously some major players who, who were around then who we don't hear from anymore. I think once the, the VC money came due, they kind of disappeared and new players entered. So I think um the number of platforms is going to have to thin the herd will have to thin you already see some some people buying other companies and stuff already that's the sort of the first sign but it's not sustainable i was at um an event two weeks ago and the statistic they utilized is that last count they saw 813 event platforms um which is an insanely high number for any sort of competitive space so i think what will happen is people will start to get back in their lanes a little bit um for lack of a better phrase. So people go back to doing what they're good at at the moment for the last sort of year and a half, everyone's had to produce a platform of some sort for, for lack of a better way of looking at it to effectively keep the lights on to survive through the turbulent times whilst the other elements like our apps, for example, and our delegate tracking hasn't really had much use during uh, COVID because that's all live event technology. So that's why the platform's been kind of the key essential for us. That's now changing and the 2022 calendar has a lot more diverse Sort of products being utilized so the likes of the event management platforms or sort that the i think the platform the event platform itself would be an add-on that people have and, mo and most people go back to doing their matchmaking algorithms their event apps tracking or management um event platforms as a whole the the various different ranges of registration that they were doing beforehand 
Um, and there may be a couple who stay fully on the, the virtual path, but I think you're going to find them thinking, right, we're going to need to start fishing in other ponds now because this isn't the be all and end all anymore. We need to then develop ourselves. Otherwise we'll be something that falls by the wayside. I think, I think the, the full 3D event platforms, personally, I think may struggle a little bit unless they completely reform. I think they were good for a spell. I personally was never massively fond of the experience I had with them. Um, developing an avatar and then trying to walk around and stuff, I just felt was detracting me away from the important bits, but they are events that they do work for, particularly experiential ones. So I'm not completely bad mouth for them. They're just not really, for the events that I've worked on, they would never have really worked for me. Um, and so I think they're definitely going to have to put a lot of thought into then where do we go from here? Because of all the, I can assure you, no one's ever told me they go to the XL because they really love the XL as a venue. They go there because of what the event's on inside the XL. Um, so recreating an exit, the XL for me doesn't really quite achieve what I would have wanted. Yeah. That's, that is one area that I always uh, <clears throat> tend to criticize the, the 3d apps for, for doing it feels like when you're doing something in VR or 3d, you have the option to meet anywhere. And when you recreate a convention center, it feels like a bit of a a bit of a flipped way of doing things, right? You're trying to recreate a space that is necessary for physical events, but not necessarily for online events. Right? Exactly. So, do you feel like there's going to be a bit of like an unpivot in 2022? Because I do feel like every event technology platform has become a virtual event platform, and then over the last three months has become a hybrid event platform, or over the last six months. Do you think then event platforms will then go back to being to doing what they're stronger at? I think so for sure, and I think those. So for us, we we always had a vision of doing the, the sort of the the virtual platform anyway. There just wasn't enough buying to it previously, so ours will kind of stick around because for us, the vision for hybrid for us essentially is if you're on site, have the mobile app because it's native. Most of the most of the information is already there, so you're not stressing the Wi-Fi out. And then you've got um, the at home audience uses the platform because it's obviously web-based. If you're using that in a venue, you're trying to reload pages all the time, it will cause more problems, but then it allows the two audiences to, to integrate. But there are some others out there. And because we we are purely sort of content focused in the way that we set everything up, that we think it, it does kind of work as a concept. I think some of the others out there will probably, they'll keep it on board because it's there as an option, but I, I think they'll probably slow down on a lot of the dev work and stuff with it because they'll want to get back to their bigger ticket items and what they what they really do specialize in and what they really want to do and as a result that should we you're already seeing now there's that there's a lot more specializing in the way the platforms are listed so you've got the, the ones that are really driven by networking so something like grip and its algorithms that's where it really sets its stall because that's where it started from um us with content uh you have the, the number of sort of 3d ones you want to try and make that experience so uh, there are for people who look hard enough there is so many many different kinds of platforms, um, which is when organizers are looking, it's always key to make sure you understand your core objective and how that aligns with how that platform's set up because there is plenty of choice out there to take that extra time. Um, but I do think, as you say, it will kind of normalize itself a little bit more, level out a little bit. Some of the sort of flash in the pan ones will disappear. The, the big guys will just will then start to buy some of the sort of small to medium guys to kind of capitalize that market share. And as a, the market will stabilize, which is natural. Yeah, that makes sense. And I see a lot of the bigger players offering the kind of one-stop shop. You know, you you have the app, you have the virtual experience, you have maybe matchmaking, you have lots of options within one platform. Do you see that as being kind of where the energy is or or do you actually see it better through integration and to using different apps that are specializing in different things? I think it all depends on what your requirements are and where you're focusing. Of course, there's the <clears throat> there's the convenience element of the all-in-ones. However, most of the time, it is probably built by a series of integrations anyway. They have either acquired or developed stuff on the basis of to kind of match what they were already doing. So it has a place for it, particularly some of them. With those ones, you tend to find, and it's one of the, I know it's one of the gripes a lot of planners are having at the moment, the sort of the complexities of pricing and contracting with event tech suppliers. Um, and it's those guys who tend to be multi-year contracts, minimum spends. And it's like, well, hold on, tech's moving so fast. I don't want to be signing away. Like you, I'm, I'm spending, I've got to sign a contract longer than you that I signed for my new mobile phone. Um, and so I, I know how quickly this space is moving. So 
I think if it's from a convenience perspective, they do work. But if there are special objectives that you want to achieve, then looking for a best in class and finding something that has, and um, particularly like with us, we've got really open APIs. We're designed to play nice with others. So if people want to do that, they can. We kind of cover loads, um, but I'm not here to plug us. It's more of a, a, a general conversation. Um, but if you do have a core objective and there's a, this is what this platform needs to be, what you want to get out of this platform, then certainly do explore those best in class for that particular area as well as looking at those all-in-ones and making sure what feels right for you and not just going for it because it's easiest because that's not necessarily always going to be the best solution for you. I think that's excellent advice. And I think it's it's very balanced advice as well. You're kind of you know think making people think about what is it that they really need and, and finding that solution that, that fits best for them. Shane, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you so much for for joining us and and talking about your your issues with imposter syndrome and, and and things that you've gone through. I think that's really helpful for planners around the world and professionals around the world. I wanted to wrap up by asking you the question we ask everybody on the podcast, which is um, if you could suggest someone who would be a great guest for the Event Manager podcast. I would definitely say keep an eye out for uh, my friends with the EWD um, acronym at the end of their end of their name because, as I say, they're all incredibly talented event industry professionals, and so that every single one would add some great content. Okay, so we have to do a little search on LinkedIn for EWD and see who who pops up, and we will find them. So it's part of the fun, the mystery of it all. <laughs> Excellent, Shane. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure, uh, and everybody listening, thank you very much for listening. No worries. Thanks for having me. So Elliot, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's nice to connect and over audio. I hope our listeners uh, enjoy that as well. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you uh, join the event industry? Yeah, thanks, Miguel. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So um, yeah, my name is Elliot Jacobson, and I'm the Global Marketing Manager here at Canopy. Um, So I first joined the event industry in 2018, actually, so not that long ago, I'd say. Um, at that time, so I was working as a marketing and event executive for Canalis. Um, Canalis is a leading uh, research firm in the IT industry, and it's also Canopy's parent company today. Um, but working at Canalis, I joined so the events team there, and um, and so I had that was really my first taste of of events. And we were organizing three of the global their global events, right, which which happen all around the world. And uh, and yeah, I took part in in the in the kind of planning and execution of all of all three. Cool. And uh, you were then part of the shift over to the pivot over to the virtual side and, and that kind of transition? Yeah, great question. So, um, so I was with them for a while. I was kind of as well finishing my degree at university. So I was helping out at the same time with their events. Um, then I kind of got, went out of the event industry itself, um, went more to the travel and tech sector. Um, and then I came back, obviously. So when uh, when virtual hit and everything kind of went virtual, um, there was that opportunity, obviously, to, to spin things off and, and to kind of provide um, and work on that virtual solution, right, for, for clients. So that's right. when I joined back back last year. And what do you enjoy about the event industry? Um, well, you know, looking at the event industry uh, as a whole, right, and maybe a bit more looking at, you know, the tech side of things, um, you know, I don't think there's a more exciting industry at the moment to be in. Um, it's 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 mind-blowing to see just how the industry has changed over the 12 to 24 months, right? Um, we're in an extremely competitive space as well, and and the rate at which everyone is innovating is, is extremely impressive. You know, I wake up, I wake up, I think every day wondering, you know, what did I miss yesterday and and how will that impact tomorrow's events? And um, all of that just keeps me on my toes, to be honest. Yep, exciting times for sure. Absolutely. So we're talking about imposter syndrome, uh, something we've written about and we've been kind of discussing a little bit about as well. Um, what's your imp- experience with imposter syndrome? You know, have you had any experiences and and how have you dealt with it? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, um, I've kind of witnessed imposter syndrome in a lot of many different scenarios, right? But, um, you know, just to come back to, to, to the blog, to your blog I read, right, by the way, I must say it, must say it was a very good read, very insightful. Um, but the, the imposter syndrome, right, is about experiencing self-doubt and I guess insecurity around your own capabilities and your intelligence, right? Especially in situations where you may compare yourself to others or if you're faced with like the unknown and, you know, in an uncomfortable environment. So, you know, it's, I, I'd say it's quite common to experience the imposter syndrome. Um, and actually um, listening to what Shane was saying, um, it, it was very interesting because he was kind of, you know, saying that he was experiencing a bit of it himself just before kind of taking part in this podcast. And, and he was comparing himself to some of the other great speakers that you have had on the show, right? 
And I must say, you know, I was kind of comparing myself to Shane being like, wow, you know, Shane has, has years of experience way, you know, way above what I have. And, and he says the same towards the other speakers. So we all feel some kind of imposter syndrome at some level. And I guess, you know, kind of realizing it and acknowledging it helps, it definitely helps with it. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's really by pinpointing why you think you're going through this, that, that you can really come out of it and, and kind of overcome it and, and see the differences and, and kind of what makes you, what makes you, yeah, as I say, overcome it itself. So that's just one example, but, you know, as an event organizer, um, there's so many examples of it. Um, so as I was mentioning at the beginning, when I, when I first joined Canalis, um, I was invited to, at that, at that time I was an intern. So um, I was also kind of just planning the events, but I was never really part of the execution of it. I didn't think I'd get the chance to travel and, and to take part of any of the three global events. Um, and it turns out my, my boss at that time, which is, Gemma, Gemma Edwards. So, so my boss today, actually, she's uh, one of the co-founders of Canopy. Um, she came up to me and she said, you know, Elliot, would you be, would you be willing to, to jump on a plane and, and, you know, come on site to Perth in Australia and help us with, you know, with the event, the APAC event. So, you know, at that time I was, I was the intern in the company. So, you know, I was kind of mind blown and I was just looking at her and kind of not knowing what to say. Obviously I was very excited. And, and for me, it was kind of almost just already like a reward right after all the planning. Turns out, you know, I was so wrong. There's no reward at, at all. I came on site. There was so much to do, so much pressure. And I think, you know, all the anxiety, the stress, and kind of the power that event organizers feel on site, you know, that is something where sometimes you can say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm maybe kind of feeling some imposter syndrome, um, especially in my case, while I was just the intern and that was my first ever event, right? And I was, I guess I was confronted to situations where you kind of, you need to take decisions on the spot. You need to be able to provide answers to, to challenges, which which are kind of, coming in every direction, you know, you're putting out fires, you're, you're dealing with important people with, with some of the, your top sponsors as well. And really that's, you know, and during an event, you would know that the rest of your team, everybody's busy doing the same things, right? So you really have to rely on yourself and it's about finding that confidence and also kind of feeling that, you know, your team is trusting you with, with the decisions you make, right? And um, I think that's something definitely I experienced. And, you know, for example, my mentor, Gemma, so she, she kind of told me at that time, I was to, to give a specific example, I had, um, I had a, one of our sponsors, our top sponsors came up to us and asked, you know, whether they could do a room drop uh, during the event. Um, and for me, you know, I was kind of, uh, was, they, they came up to me first, right? So I was like, okay, I need to, I need to go speak to, to the rest of the team, see what we can do. And obviously they wanted to do that for free, right? Um, so it came down to the decision where I kind of had to go speak to Gemma and say, look, you know, our top sponsor wants to do a room drop, you know, how much, you know, how much are we going to charge them? I was kind of running through the whole thing and, and Gemma looks, for me, it was almost like, you know, negotiating a huge deal at that time, right, as the intern. And Gemma kind of said, you know, Elliot, run with it. I think, you know, I trust you to, to, to make the right decision, to negotiate this, to do what you think is best and, and try to get something out of it, right? Um, so I kind of went back to, to these guys and I had to talk, to talk to them and talk through kind of the deal. And, and we negotiated, it went on and off. And here I was kind of, you know, pitching numbers and trying to get to, to what I think was right. And at the end of the day, well, we, we did end up, end up doing it for free, but I think, you know, the real lesson in it, in it was, you know, if you have a team that really provides you that support and, and that trust and that kind of a very stressful and, you know, challenging environment, then, then obviously it's, it's easier to overcome um, the, um, the imposter syndrome itself. Absolutely. No, thanks for those examples. Um, so, I mean, I think you're, you're giving some good examples of why the industry is quite stressful and i think you can see that there's 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 a lot of pressure of this kind of time sensitivity of events do you think you know with your experience with canopy in terms of the pivot to virtual or helping people then with the virtual side of events do you feel that that was has also been a a factor that's led to to extra stress and perhaps more imposter syndrome showing up when it comes to the planner side you know planners that are having to use technology in a way that they weren't used to before the pandemic yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the imposter syndrome would affect a lot of, you know, the event industry in a lot of different ways, right? And um, in some in some, some would even say the event industry is probably kind of a breathing ground for this syndrome because <laughs> of all the change and, and disruption happening, right? I mean, it would be it would be completely normal for, for many event organizers to feel the stress and challenges that go with it. Um, so, you know, it, it really happens in a different different number of ways. For example, you know, if I was, as I was saying, you know, as Shane said as well, you know, we where, you know, myself, I don't have tens of years of experience uh, within the event industry itself, right? And, and that's something I realized, and that's probably something, you know, I don't have compared to a lot of the event organizers out there that have been planning events for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, so 
I was reading actually, you know, that some some of these event organizers that have all of the, these experience, all of this knowledge in organizing events, then realize that they maybe don't have you know enough tools or or the correct skill set anymore to plan and execute on virtual and hybrid events, right? And for me, where where I don't have these user years of experience, but I kind of kind of came into this world where we were already going virtual. Um, you know, the, the first events we were doing, we had already the mobile apps, so we were already hybrid in, in some instance. And you know, I can I can bring a different perspective as well to the table, right? So it's about teaming up and really bringing strengths of each individual. So you know, working with Gemma, which has years of experience, you know, in front of me in the in the event event industry, and and myself kind of only coming in with with the virtual side of things and and kind of showing and you know being more adept with technology and kind of realizing how technology can help with events. I think, you know, by combining our forces to, together and bringing our perspective to the table, right, we just might as well end up with a recipe for success. So so that's kind yep. of the way I see things, you know, perspective and, and acknowledging that, you know, experience doesn't doesn't mean everything. I think it's, it's also how you drive things forward and, and kind of bring in your own your own background and, and your own kind of tools and resources as well. Yeah, it does sound like with the Canopy history as, as it was developed from a team that had lots of years of experience of physical events, it does feel like you're uniquely positioned to then help anyone that's experiencing imposter syndrome or any sort of stresses really. But I think when it comes to imposter syndrome, it's not always obvious. And I think a lot of people hesitate to ask for help, right? Because they, they're feeling that imposter syndrome. So it's not a, a not a good place to be when you ask for help. But do you have any any examples or any kind of clients that you're that you can see are helping with? I don't want you to name any clients, but you know what I mean? Just sort of situations where you're actually helping people overcome maybe a lack of kind of understanding of the virtual world or what they can do in, in that virtual scenario? Absolutely. I think, you know, we have, we, we have numerous conversations, whether those are calls, you know, online meetings or, or even person at, at some events, right, that we've been at. But it's it's really, you know, when we have these conversations, it's about, you know, ourselves, we, we acknowledge things and, and we, you know, we're the first ones to say, you know, we've tested these out. We were, you know, we, with, our, with, with the Canals events, obviously, we can test things out and test technology and test kind of new formats and, and things of and ways of deliver, uh, delivering on virtual and hybrid events and, and how kind of all of those concepts come together, right? So, you know, it's, it's, we're in a position where we can say during, you know, during our, our conversations and with clients is, you know, we, well, potential clients or clients, you know, we know and we, we know already what works well. We don't have, we, you know, there's so many best practices out there. And I think a lot of companies are starting to, to find those. Um, we're starting to, to kind of see the elements which are maybe working more in person while some of the elements where we can stress more of the virtual side of things. So we're kind of balancing out kind of the, the hybrid, you know, the hybrid formula in that sense. But um, it's during those conversations that, you know, we can tell, we can tell people, you know, this works well, but we, how about, you know, if we try this, we think this will work well as well. And, you know, I think in the conversations we're having, a lot of people are, are willing to take that step forward and say, you know, let's, let's risk it a bit. Let's, you know, let's go with what we know works well already. And then, you know, if we cannot add this element to it and, and see how technology will help us, you know, get, achieve those goals, then let's do it. And I think, I think people are just acknowledging that hybrid is, it's such a, a vague term, yet there's so much room for opportunity, right? And and everybody's really really ready to move forward with it. So so we know we're all in line, kind of advancing and, and discovering things at the same time. Nice, excellent. So, do you have a a vision for the future events? Do you have a, a clear kind of idea of what you think it can look like? Um, well, that's a that's a difficult one. You know, you would have asked me. A year ago, I'd have, I'd have said no. Now, you know, maybe a bit more than than before. But you know, um, as as Shane said as well, I think he 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 put it he put it well. But um, hybrid events definitely are are here to stay, um, or are going to be here to stay for for forever. Um, and virtual as well. You know, it's because we've gone through this kind of virtual boost or this virtual complete kind of reconfiguration that we have seen these huge advantages of how technology and how virtual events, you know, come to, to delivering on, on um, event objectives and, and goals, really, that we set, our, we set ourselves. There's definitely some key learnings and best practices that we, we took away from all of these virtual events and that we're going to continue applying in the future, right? So it's about kind of combining these advantages with, with kind of in-person events and um, that we're really going to have uh, a better and a, and a more equipped kind of hybrid event in, to say, right? So it's about really providing the best possible experience. And to do so, that requires a lot of flexibility, you know, flexibility for attendees, flexibility for organizers. Um, so there's a lot of testing to do. I think we 
we found already kind of where we're kind of, uh, our, our stepping stones and, and how, how we're going to move forward with it. And now it's just about using those advantages, trying to apply them to in-person events, seeing what comes out of it, if it really drives value or not for all event stakeholders, right? Whether that's your attendees, uh, whether that's, you know, your the, the organizers, whether that's your sponsors, um, you know, it's, it's really about testing things out. But um, there's definitely kind of, we're sailing that ship towards uh, the hybrid horizon um, and uh, really discovering those opportunities, yeah. That sounds really positive. Um, just want to wrap up by asking you a message maybe to planners for, for 2020, those that are planning ahead for 2020. What can you tell them to make them feel a bit more comfortable and a little more like, like they've got this for 2022? Yeah, great question. Um, well, you know, I think the best way to, to look at it is really to, to continue kind of questioning um, events as a whole, right? Not not sticking to a specific format, not sticking to a specific formula, working on what we know works what best. And then and then on top of that, you know, trying things out. I think, um, you know, it's it's kind of trusting as well the people you work with, trusting the companies you may you may decide to partner with and kind of realizing everybody kind of bringing their ideas to the table towards a specific goal or an objective, right? So really there there's there's so many, so many kind of uh, best practices and messages to share, but um, definitely taking the first step forward and, and, you know, really not being, not stopping yourself in front of an obstacle that you think, you know, it's because of in-person events, we won't be able to do this or virtual, we won't be able to do that. Hybrid is a little complicated. I think it's kind of trying to overcome these obstacles and, and finding new ways of, of working, right, and, and of delivering planning and delivering events across the world. Sounds good. Sounds like you really feel like People should trust the partners that they partner with. There's a reason they become partners, right? So Absolutely. trust them to, <laughs> to, to lead them into good places when it comes to the next year of events. Absolutely. All right, Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for your input and sharing your experiences. Uh, and I hope you uh, join us next time as well on the Event yeah. Manager podcast. Thanks, Miguel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Event Manager podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com.